0: So have you ever finished in second place? Ever had a second place finish in life? Now, it's been a long time, but I'm fairly certain I'll get most of these details right, or that most of these details are right. In the seventh grade, I came in second place in the district spelling bee to Tina Spradley. I think it was because I spelled the word squalid and they wanted the word squalor. I don't know. My mom says it was me, but I don't know. In eighth grade, I was the second string center on the football team behind Jeff Temples. In ninth grade, I came in second in the class president election to Rod Kite. In tenth grade, I came in second in the class president election to Rod Kite. I had a rough few years there. But 11th grade looked up. In 11th grade, I won the class president election by getting a few more votes than Rod Kite. And then in 12th grade, I ran for student body president, and I came in second place to Rod Kite. If you're wondering, yes, Rod and I are still competing in life, You probably caught our last contest on Facebook back in May when we had dueling guitar songs for our birthdays. So I'm sure if you archived that and found that, you would find that once again, I came in second to Rod. But we'll try it again this coming May. There's a lot of funny phrases out there for second place. A lot of them come from the world of sports. Some of these that you have heard. Vince Lombardi said, There is no room for second place. There is only one place in my game, and that is first place. Dale Earnhardt said, Second place is just the first place loser. William Cullen Bryant said, Winning isn't everything, but it beats anything in second place. There's a Nike shirt that says, Second place looks good on you. And then, of course, there's this one. Knock, knock. Who's there? The guy that finished second. The guy that finished second who? Exactly. Exactly. You'll get it after lunch. <laughs> Take your pick of the categories of life, and what you will find is that second place is not encouraged. You look at sports. You look at politics. You look in a courtroom case. You look in education and schools. You look in, uh, you know, restaurant ratings. You look in the employee of the month at the Stan Makita donut shop. There is never a place where second place is like, yeah, you need to be second place. But what if I were to tell you this morning that the absolute, indisputable, heavyweight champion place of the world for you is second place? What if I were to tell you that the most satisfying place for you, for your family, for your heart, for your mind, for your soul, for your attitude, for your emotions, for every part of who you are is actually not first place. In fact, if you're in first place, you actually lose. But what in the world are we talking about? Well, let's find out. Listen to the words of Jesus in Luke chapter 11, verse 3 Give us each day our daily bread. Jesus is teaching his closest friends. His most loyal followers, he's teaching them how to pray. He's giving them a a model, a guideline, a pattern. And if we're going to follow after Jesus, and this is also our model and our guideline and our pattern as well. And he begins with something kind of important. See, he's trying to help us understand these are the things we need to think about before we pray. And then these are the, the words that need to guide our words while we are praying. And so he begins with something kind of clear. Just one sentence back in verse 2. Jesus says, Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. So Jesus presses believers, first off, to call the God of the universe, Father. You see, the creator God has been revealing himself in supernatural and natural and practical ways for at least the last 3,500 years. And that same creator God, he knows you best, and he loves you best. But some people can't make a connection with that love. Some people have a hard time understanding the love of God. They they either feel like the love of God is failing them, or they even think that the love of God is just false. It's not true. There's a lot of people that think of God as an evil dictator that needs to be shunned. Some people think of God as a, a weak grandpa who ran out of candy. Some people think that God is just a, a figment of Billy Graham's imagination. It's just not real. Trevin Wax says this, just like you probably have relatives who you love but don't necessarily like being around, you might think that God loves you like a distant father. Someone who tolerates your imperfections and chastises you for your mistakes. He shows you grace in letting you live in his house, but he doesn't care to spend much time with you. Many of us have adopted this distorted picture of a God who loves us in the abstract, but who isn't very fond of us personally. That may be how you feel about God this morning. But Jesus shoots that down immediately. Jesus says that, that prayer is this relationship, this loving relationship with the perfect Father. And there's a reason that God is the perfect Father. He's the perfect Father because He's the only one in the universe ever in history whose name is hallowed. There is no other name like the name of God. God is alone God. There's no knock knock jokes about the name of God. Satan and all of his demons, they don't hear something about God and say, Who? They know the Almighty. He is first, he is most, he is holy, he is hallowed, he is other. He is holy, holy, holy. He is other, other, other. There is no one like God. And because there's no one like him, that means that he gets the last say. No one has the last say except God Almighty. You see, every single king and every single queen and every single president Every single head coach, every single celebrity, every single pastor, every single person, they will come and go. Every kingdom will come and go. But not so with the God of the Bible. His kingdom comes and His kingdom stays forever. And in some ways, His kingdom has already come. You see, the the reign of God does not have a a starting and ending point. It, It always is. We mentioned last week there's external aspects of the kingdom of God and internal aspects of the kingdom of God. The external is that there are former and current and eventual and ultimate things that God is going to do externally and that God is doing externally on earth and in heaven. And then there are internal things of the kingdom of God. Things that are former and current and eventual and ultimate that God is doing in our hearts and our minds and our attitudes and our opinions, drawing us to him and ruling and reigning over the inside of our lives. The way we put it last week was that the kingdom of God is, the kingdom of God was, the kingdom of God has always been, and the kingdom of God will always be. There's not a time that it ends. Now, that kind of makes our prayers sound different, or at least it should, right? I mean, this, this God has invited us into his kingdom. That, that sounds different sometimes than how we pray, right? Lord, Lord, please be with Bubba Ray's toe. He cut it real bad on the nail that was on the broken stool that fell over in the floor in 1976 and still been sitting there. Please, 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 please be with his toe. Look. It's good to pray for Bubba Ray's toe. It's a kind thing. But even just the first few words of Jesus' prayer, it it calls us beyond the toe. It calls us beyond the health issues. It calls us beyond the home issues. It, It calls us beyond the issues at work. We are being invited into something huge and gigantic and big and awesome and astounding. Jesus is calling us into the kingdom of God. He's calling us into a relationship with the only one who was and is and is to come. No one else like that. And so he begins, Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. And then he pulls us in a direction that has to do with God and us. And the next thing he says to his disciples is this is what you need to pray. You need to pray, give us. Give us. Imagine little Jimmy and little Bobby sitting on the floor in the daycare and they're playing with toys. And little Bobby has a truck and little Jimmy sees that truck. And all of a sudden, little Jimmy just yells out, gimme! Gimme, gimme, gimme! give me, gimme, give me, give me, give me, give me, give me, give me, give me. That didn't need a whole lot of translation, right? I mean, we know what Jimmy wants is he selfishly wants the truck. That's not the kind of gimme Jesus is talking about. It's it's not the kind of give us that he's talking about. The word here, forgive, means to grant or to permit. It means that there's something that you need or something that you want, and it is not possible for you to get it on your own. You actually need someone else to help you get this. I think sometimes we live in a culture where we forget how real that is because we're not really a give me kind of culture. We're more of, I'm going to take it kind of culture. You don't, don't give me anything. I'll, I'll work for it myself. I think I've shared with you all the story before, maybe on Wednesday nights about the free lunch. I was sitting in a biscuit joint one morning and there was a guy behind me at the table and he was whooping it up, man. He was ranting and raving to a couple old boys behind me. And he was going on and on about how the country's just gone to the dogs. This place is terrible. He said, when I was growing up, he goes, things were right. We had prayer in school, and the Ten Commandments were hanging on the wall, and and we drank lemonade out on the front porch on Sunday afternoons, and we waved at people, and we we smiled at people, and, and everyone was really nice. And the devil wasn't working. And every teenager always did the right thing and never sinned. And all politicians were squeaky clean and honest. And every husband and wife was faithful to one another. You may have heard my sarcasm at the end. He didn't say those things. There's never been a decade, a year, a day that the enemy wasn't alive and well. Sometimes he's just behind the scenes. He's not hanging on the wall, but he's there. So, this old guy, boy, he's, he's going to town. And then he gets on school lunch, free lunch at school. Man, he got all out enough about that, too. It's the worst thing that had ever happened in this country, worst thing that ever happened in the school system. It's just awful. And then, in a voice loud enough that all the old boys at the biscuit joint down the street could hear him, said, I ain't never had a free lunch in my life. Sadly, a few weeks later, I found out the guy was a preacher. did <laughs> doesn't help this story at all. Sorry. But you know what I wanted to turn around and say to him was, Actually, sir, every single lunch you've ever had was free. You see, every lunch you eat, every bill you pay, every pill you take, every game that you watch, every sunrise that wakes you up, every sunset that amazes you, every single moment, every single breath is a reflection of the common, kind, generous, free grace of God. All of it. Again, though, some people just mm, they, they can't, they can't get with that. Because again, to them, God's a he's an evil dictator, he's a, a weak grandpa, he's he's an imaginary friend. Or then there's other people that just they genuinely, sincerely do not believe there is a God. And so so this whole notion that their job and their house and their family and their food and their shelter and that everything that they have is actually a reflect. even their breath, is actually a reflection, a gift from God. That, that's just foreign to them. They, they can't make a connection with that. And, and even some, if you tell them that, they hate it. They despise that notion altogether. And so what I want to do just, just for a moment is to try to make a super brief appeal to believe in God. Just from two angles. There's more, but just from two angles. And those angles are from reason and beauty. Now, I realize and try to appeal to someone to believe in God, and maybe you're someone that doesn't believe in God, but to appeal for someone to believe in God, you're never going to have the right words without the Spirit. So as so I hope that if you are someone who doesn't believe in God, that, that the Spirit might open your eyes and your hearts even now. So the first would be reason. Joe Carter uh, has a very interesting description of what the world would be like if we take God out of the creation story. It's a little bit tongue-in-cheek. It's longer than what I'm going to read. I'm just going to read the first portion. You can find it on the Internet. In the beginning was nothing, and nothing created everything. When nothing decided to create everything, She filled a tiny dot with time, chance, and everything, and had it expand. The expansion spread everything into everywhere, carrying time and chance to keep it company. The three stretched out together, leaving bits of themselves wherever they went. And one of those places was the planet Earth. For no particular reason, time and chance took a liking to this little wet Blue Rock, and they decided to stick around and see what adventures they might have. A little tongue-in-cheek there, but the picture helps, right? And if you will take that picture and then apply it to every single other aspect of life, you'll run into a wall. You see, there's absolutely no corner of our life where anything functions like that. You take any role, any place, teacher, doctor, lawyer, stay-at-home mom, football coach, police officer, abstract artist. You take anybody and you look at their life and, and how they function and what they do. And you will not find that anything in life runs on random spontaneous time or chance. There's nothing in this world that runs like that. Even the abstract artists, they they have basic foundational ideas. They have basic resources that they use. And so if the ins and outs of our everyday life have some kind of reasonable measure of structure and creative nature that maintains and creates it, then why would we think that the existence of matter was somehow random, time, time? Chance and spontaneous scientific process. It's just not reasonable to say that there's not a creator. Every aspect of our life screams the opposite. And so, reasonably, I plead with you to believe in God, but also from a standpoint of beauty. I love what pastor and theologian John Calvin said. You cannot in one glance survey this most vast and beautiful system of the universe in its wide expanse without being completely overwhelmed by the boundless force of its brightness. I love that. Think of your favorite place in the world. It might be the beach. It might be the mountains. It might be somewhere out west. It might be a, another place in the world, another continent, another country. Think of your, your favorite place to look at, to think about. Think of how bright and how amazing and how encouraging that place is. There's no way it just happened. That brightness, it comes from somewhere. There's no way that its beauty is just random time and chance. Why? Because true beauty is never random. It's never random. You see, the reality is it's not that we don't have enough proof of God's existence. It's not that we don't have enough evidence. It's just that when we see the evidence, we don't like it. And you know why? Because when we see the evidence, this is what we see. We see all of that evidence sitting in first place. We see all of that evidence sitting in the winner's circle. We see all of that evidence on the gold medal podium. And when we look at it, we realize we aren't there. We're not in the winner's circle. We're not in first place. We're not there with the gold medal. And we don't like that. It's not that we don't have the evidence. When we see the evidence, we realize it doesn't point to us. Paul said it this way in Romans, Romans chapter 1, verse 20. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power, his divine nature, being understood through what has been made so that they, meaning anybody, are without excuse. So to deny the existence of God is actually to fight against the very basic nature of reason. To fight against the existence and deny the existence of God is to fight against the very basic nature of beauty. But the fight is not confusing. The fight should not surprise us at all because the fight just keeps reminding us we don't like second place. We don't want to be in second place, which is probably exactly why Jesus right here in this moment in teaching his disciples how to talk to the God of the universe says you need to say give us. You need to turn to God and ask him to give. There's a sense here that what he's saying is this. You need to pray this way because you need to be thinking when you pray, God, if you don't give me what I need, I will have nothing. I mean, think of this. Tomorrow morning if I wake up and all of a sudden my eyes don't work anymore and my ears don't work anymore and I can't use my hands and I can't use my feet, if all of a sudden every aspect of the economy that manages the money and the resources that I do have falls apart, if everything in my human abilities, physical abilities, is taken away, and if all of my financial resources are taken away, you know what I'm going to need? I'm going to need a free lunch. There seems to be this pull in this prayer that when we pray, Lord, if, if you don't give me my next breath, I won't make it. And I think we no longer pray like that even as Christians. I think we've, we've backed away from that. And sometimes I think we even come to prayer like we're an FBI informant. You know? We got some secret information and, all right, yeah, I'll share this with you. Like God didn't get the memo of what's going on you know, in our life. See, he knows all, he sees all, he, he does all. So when we say give us, all we're saying is this, God, I'm coming to pray to remind my heart to say to you again, you're God and I'm not. Your kingdom is the kingdom that's coming. And when we pray, give us, what we're saying is this, God, you are where I'm going to get true beauty and true wisdom and true hope and true joy and true peace and true Love. The only place that we get true love is from God. We're asking, praying to a holy, hallowed Father. And Jesus goes more than just say give us. He he gives us a a picture of how we should keep praying. Look what he says next in verse three give us each day. Look, there's nothing wrong with long range planning. Good stuff. There are, are times that our prayers really need to launch out farther than just today. But the whole message of the Bible and the message of Jesus here seems to say that what we need to do most is be thankful and focused just on today. We live in a big box store world there, right? We live in a world that, that why would we go to the regular store and buy a box of four pins? Well, we can go to the super fantastic store and buy a box of 144 pins that we can have to pass down to our grandkids one day, yeah? We, we live in this big box world where, where we have so much. And so one of the reasons that prayer seems to be the weakest of Christian disciplines, one of the reasons that, that a prayer group at a prayer meeting is the least attended at a church is because we are not desperate. We're just not. We're not desperate people. Think of how much money will be spent this weekend on Valentine's dinners, We're not desperate. And since we're not desperate, we we don't pray with desperation. And even on those few moments when we do pray with desperation, we don't pray with much humility. Our, our, Our prayers just sound very different. Our prayers sound more like, well, you know, I mean, God, I mean, the Griswolds down the street, they've already got theirs. How come I don't have mine? You know, God, why aren't you answering this prayer yet? Come on, what's, what's the holdup, God? Spurgeon put it this way: There's no trial like prosperity. In other words, when when we have so much, it's hard for us to realize what we have and what's going on. Somebody's put it this way: when you look at how, listen to how many of us pray before we pray over our food, it sounds almost like a, a mechanical ceremony of just saying, Hey, let's eat. You know? There's not much passion, much joy, even in how we pray over our food. The simple, joyful thanks of every day is being strangled. And what's it being strangled by? What's being strangled by what's going on tomorrow? It's being strangled by the worries of next week. Sometimes it's being strangled by, you know, the next anniversary or the next annual meeting. we're so worried with expectations. We're so worried about how things have to be and, and the way we want things to be. If we look just casually at the life of Jesus, we will see something pretty consistent, though. He continues to say, look, you need to be thankful and focused on today. This is where your heart, this is where your mind and your love and your passion needs to be. And he's saying this is where your prayers need to be, too. Even specifically, he says that. Look at the next part. Give us each day our daily bread. All right, now just for a moment, this is Jesus the Christ. This is the Messiah. This is the Son of God. He's teaching his disciples how to pray. And he says, ask God for bread. Bread. I mean, really, doesn't that sound a little bit silly? I mean, really? We're supposed to ask God for, we're supposed to ask the God of the universe, you know, for a slice of pumpernickel? Yeah, you are. And here's what Jesus is trying to do with that one simple thing. He's trying to let you know God even cares about your slice of pumpernickel cares about that. I love how Peter says it, 1 Peter 5, 7, he cares for you. Listen, I don't know what trial you're in the middle of right now. Well, I do know some of your trials. I, I don't know what it is that you're struggling with or wrestling with. I don't, I don't know what prayer you think God is not answering that you think he should be answering. I don't know all your problems at school, all your problems with your friends, all your problems in your marriage or with your family or with your kids or your grandkids or or what you have facing you at the doctor's office this week. But regardless of what it is and who you are and where you are, I can promise you this is always true. God cares for you. It's who he is. He loves you best. He knows you best. And he desires to give to you. It is his passion, his hunger. But he doesn't just want to give you bread, he wants to give you more than just bread. He wants to care for your soul. He wants to give your soul what it needs because your soul needs more than your stomach. Jesus had not eaten for 40 days. I mean, just do the math 40 days. I mean, I eat lunch, and 40 minutes later, I'm thinking about the next snack, you know? 40 days, no food. So in that moment, his greatest need, his most physical challenge was hunger. He was hungry. And in that moment, Satan, the enemy, saunters up to him and says this. If you are the son of God... Tell this stone to become bread. Come on, Jesus. You're hungry. Come on, this this is wrong. God's not being nice to you. I mean, why don't you just ask him for daily bread? I mean, that's not a big deal, right? I I bet you could even turn these stones into bread. I bet you have the power. Come on, you, you deserve it. After all, God helps those that help themselves. Come on. Come on, Jesus. It's really interesting when you look at what the enemy's trying to do, right? What the enemy is trying to do is he's trying to get us and Jesus to do the same thing, and that's this quit turning to God, quit trusting in God, quit waiting on God, quit, quit doing things God's ways. And instead, what what the enemy was trying to get Jesus to do and what he tries to get us to do is to trust in ourselves and trust in our abilities and trust in our skills and trust in our experiences and trust in our dreams and trust in our visions and trust in what we are doing because that's got to be the final Or maybe put another way, what the enemy is always trying to do as he was doing with Jesus in that moment is he's looking at us and he's saying this. You know what? You don't deserve to be in second place. Come on, step up. Take over again. So how did Jesus respond? What did Jesus do? Well, Jesus could have ripped in to Satan. I mean, really, he, He could have ripped him up one side and down the other in his own words. But he doesn't do that. Jesus actually uses God's words. He uses the scripture. He uses the bread of truth. And what does he use? He goes all the way back to Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy chapter 8 verse 3. And God humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know. You know, clue what manna was. Nor did your fathers know what it was. And he did that that he might make you know that man does not live by their next paycheck. The man does not live by their retirement account. The man does not live by the gasoline that's even in their car today. But man lives by not the bread, not the gas, not the money, not the things, not even the breath itself. But he says what? But man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. So here's what Jesus did. Jesus fights hunger with confidence in God. Jesus fights temptation with confidence in God. In other words, Jesus in this moment loves second place because he knows who's in first. He knows he can trust him. turning stones into bread in that moment, this is what Jesus would have been saying. He would have been saying this to Satan. You know what? You're right. God is not enough. If he had turned those stones into bread, what Jesus would be saying is this. You know what? I need something else other than God. He is not the greatest reality in the universe, but he doesn't do that. And how did it turn out for Jesus? How did his confidence in the Father turn out? Well, the way it turned out is he was brutally executed for something that he didn't even do. That's, that's how it turned out for him, being confident in God. So if you obey God, if you honor God, you may not get a new car. It may not all turn out peachy and fuzzy just like you hoped it would. But there's always this interesting benefit because Jesus' story didn't end with death and execution. In fact, the scripture says that, and not even the scripture, even external secular history records that Jesus rose from the dead, that he is alive right now, that he is coming again, and that he will reign over a kingdom that will never end. Big deal. What does it have to do with you? Well, this is what it has to do with you. You see, for those who listen and live out this model prayer, for those who refuse to be in first place, for, for those who give up their phony gold medals, for those who surrender to Jesus Christ, there is a promise that comes with his kingdom. And this is how he put it. I will come again and receive you to myself that where I am, there you may be also with the king in his everlasting kingdom, a kingdom with perfect and never-ending joy, perfect and never-ending satisfaction, perfect and never-ending satisfying, true, pure love. You see, the kingdom of God is the definition of winning. And that's why second place to the Lord is for winners.